Thanks, John. I wonder if any of us have ever seen this flag before. It's the international orienteering flag. You might have seen it when you're out in the bush, a, a waypoint for people doing orienteering. I don't know if you've ever done orienteering before, but it's all about going in the right direction. You use a compass and a map to go from point to point across unfamiliar territory, all at speed. It's a great way to get some exercise and explore new areas. But at the end of the day, it's all about heading in the right direction so that you end up in the right destination. It's easy as we go through life to drift off course, particularly when times are tough. And that's what Peter addresses for us in our passage today and also the passage that we're going to be looking at together next week. Writing, remember, here in this book to Christians who were beginning to suffer for being followers of Jesus, who were beginning in their daily lives to experience slander and rejection and attack. And here in our passage today, he lays before them the waypoints in suffering, the direction that our thoughts and our feelings and our actions should take as we suffer. The first of the, the waypoints in our passage is there in verses 1 to 6. Suffering orientates us to Christ. That's our first point this morning. Suffering orientates us to Christ. Just as Christ served as the model for our submission, so it is for our suffering. Verse 1. Therefore, Peter reminds us, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. We're to arm ourselves, prepared for spiritual warfare, with a particular mindset, a particular attitude towards suffering. And there's two parts to this I want you to see. When Christ was crucified, it looked like evil had won, didn't it? It looked in that moment as though Satan was in the ascendancy and as if he'd dealt that one final fatal blow. God, on a cross, crucified. But yet, God was achieving his purposes even in that moment, even in the darkest moment that history has ever seen. And he had the last word too, didn't he? Raising Christ from the dead. Achieving victory and glory, even in the midst of the most horrendous of circumstances. And we need to remember the same thing when we suffer, friends. Peter forewarns and forearms us here that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. We might be tempted to think that we're entitled to a comfortable pain-free life, but that's far from what Jesus has promised. You know, I think sometimes as Christians, we can even 
unconsciously think that if we if we read our Bibles, if we pray, if we give enough, that God will be kind to us, that he'll bless us. But that's karma. That's not biblical. And so, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes as if it were something unusual in the Christian life. And we need to remember that when it comes, when it feels for all intents and purposes as though God's lost control and as if evil's winning, we need to remember that God is still at work and he hasn't abandoned us. If we fail to remember that, we can be tempted to fall away. But there's a second thing I want you to see there in verse 1. Just as when Christ suffered and he did away with the punishment of sin for believers, when we suffer, we break the power of sin in our lives. There's a connection between suffering and our sanctification. Gary touched on that in the sermon last week, didn't he? Often the the, the godliest people we meet are the ones who have endured most suffering. If you remember back to our series in Romans last year, we saw in chapters 6 and 7 the the dual realities of our new life in Christ. That we're no longer slaves to sin, that we have been set free from the judgment that sin brings. But as we all painfully know, There's also a very real sense that our old self is still at work. We remain in this life in an ongoing battle from the day of our conversion until the day of our glorification in heaven. If you can remember history class in high school, it's a bit like the end of World War II. Historians say that the Allied landing at Normandy in June 1944, what we now called D-Day, marked the beginning of the end of the war. Yet the Battle of the Bulge, one of the deadliest and bloodiest battles of the war, was still to come. And in some ways our conversion is a bit like that. The outcome of the war is no longer in doubt. Christ has achieved victory for us on the cross. But yet this side of heaven, we're still engaged in ongoing battle day by day until victory is realized in glory. And it's our mindset in those day by day battles that Peter wants to reinforce today. Throughout this letter, Peter has urged us to do away with the sin that still lingers in our flesh. And he reiterates that there in verse 2. Having been released from the power of sin, we're no longer to pursue those ways of old, but to live in light of the change that Christ has wrought in us. That's the mindset we need in battle. We're to to reorientate our lives away from ourselves and our own desires and towards Christ and God's will for us. Not taking the path of least resistance and pursuing the way of the flesh but committing ourselves to God's will and the way of the Spirit. And praise God, that is something that these believers were clearly doing, as Peter affirms them in verses 3 and 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, 
living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Peter makes the point that these believers, like all of us, had spent enough time, more than enough time in the past, experiencing the the hopelessness of sin. And praise God, these believers had put these worldly desires and indulgences behind them. And the change had been noticed. Their neighbours were struggling to comprehend that they now no longer participated in these vices. They were astonished that these believers no longer pursued that empty way of life. I wonder, my brother, my sister, do your work colleagues, your sports teammates, the members of your club, notice the difference in you? Not that you're a, you're a fun-hating wowser, but that you don't laugh when crude or hurtful jokes are offered at another's expense. That you don't go out and get smashed on Friday or Saturday night with your teammates. That you're not part of that Monday morning conversation about sexual conquests over the weekend. Those are all real examples from my working life. I remember what it's like. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be different. But if there's one thing we've been reminded of here in this series, it's that as elect exiles scattered, we are different in this world. And we will. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but we will be subject to the inevitable consequences. Slander, abuse, scorn. Because these believers refused to be part of the the social situations that involved idolatry and immorality. They were accused by that they were accused of all manner of things. Early Christians were accused of destroying the fabric of society. They were accused of being disloyal because their allegiance was to Christ above all else. They were even accused of being cannibals because they ate flesh and drank blood in the Lord's Supper. This slander and rejection made all the harder, no doubt, by the fact that it came from former friends and colleagues. I think part of the reason for these attacks is the convicting power of a Christian. The convicting power of a Christian. Our friends and family who don't yet know Christ don't like it when we won't participate in the activities that we used to before. When we stop behaving as we used to and march to the beat of a different drummer, people won't like it. They'll feel judged because we won't embrace sinful choices as our own. They'll speak evil of us, even as we love them. But notice, as Peter continues for us in verse 5, whilst there's a very real cost to following Jesus now. And notice Peter's very upfront about the cost of following Jesus now. He reminds us that there's also a price to pay for rejecting him. 
for one day. Their detractors and opponents who loom large in the mind right now will have to answer to God. All of us will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I was reading this week and I discovered that there's only a few valid reasons to miss court here in New South Wales. A serious accident, a sudden illness, or a personal tragedy are all reasons to miss a court date. But not this court date before the Lord. There's no excuse. No one will be missing it. That means, verse 6, that the death of a Christian, even due to persecution, isn't the tragedy it seems to be. For death also represents the vindication of the believer. Verse 6 seems a bit complicated at first. I don't know if you noticed that when John was reading earlier. But when you think about it, it actually makes sense in the flow of the passage. Peter's just spoken about the judgment that awaits the living and the dead. And here he's speaking about those who heard and responded to the gospel in their lifetime, but have now died. And whilst those believers might have been judged and scorned by unbelievers in their earthly life, God will have the final say. And his judgment will be life. Every day we're judged, aren't we? Sometimes fairly, other times unfairly. Sometimes graciously and other times harshly. Yet, any judgment, when you think about it, made about us in this world doesn't ultimately matter because it's a judgment made in the flesh. Just like Jesus, we might be declared guilty from a worldly point of view, but it's only the verdict of God that matters. And that very fact, my friends, that it's only the verdict of God that matters that changes the way we live, doesn't it? It means that we can suffer injustice willingly. Yes, even suffer injustice willingly because we're entrusting ourselves to God's justice. It means we don't have to live and act day by day based on the judgment of people. No, we live for the audience of one. We live fearing God's judgment, not that of the world. We need to remember that in our society, don't we? That humans don't have the final say. No matter how vocal and pointed their opposition might be, God's say is the one that matters. And the scriptures tell us that his judgment will be a time of vindication for Christians. And that time when God's verdict is given, Peter continues, it's not far away. That's our second key waypoint in this passage, that suffering orientates us to the future. Verse 7, suffering orientates us to the future. The, the final judgment and vindication of believers isn't just wishful thinking for Peter. No, as he says there at the start of verse 7, the end of all things is near. The end is right around the corner. And so we need to live accordingly. Redeem every moment. Make every day count. Living with a sense of urgency, not comfort in this world. As Peter says there in verse 7, 
Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Just as you can't be alert to dangers on the road when you're driving, if you turn aside, orientating our eyes to eternity helps us to stay alert now, helping us to be clear-minded and level-headed, to see this life with the right perspective, and so to pray. There's something about suffering that just gives us the right perspective, isn't it? Suffering allows us to see with greater clarity what's really important. I think we've all experienced that to a greater or lesser extent over the last 18 months, haven't we? Even though our our suffering here in Australia due to COVID is slight compared to almost everywhere else in the world, all of us have felt the flimsiness of many of the things that we put our hope in. We've seen that things that we find comfort and hope in, things like our jobs, our businesses, our health, we've seen that they are all a very insecure basis for our hope. Some of our idols have been revealed as we've found it hard to see those things smashed away from under us. We've seen that true hope, lasting hope, is found only in the Lord. We've seen, through, we've seen with greater clarity through the experience of suffering. That's what Peter says here. Suffering orientates us to God and to his plans. And also we see in verses 8 to 11, this is our third point this morning, suffering also orientates us to each other. Suffering also orientates us to each other. When you're suffering, it's easy to become very inward and self-focused, isn't it? To, to become very woe is me and only think about ourselves and our difficulties. But here, Peter points these believers and us to a different, to an outward, other-focused orientation in suffering. It's totally countercultural, isn't it? Once again, Peter reminds us that our love for other believers isn't an optional extra. It's a central part of our faith. Our love is to be deep and enduring and earnest. The phrase that that Peter uses, love covers over, I think is worth unpacking for a moment or two because it's that, that, that theme, covering over, is actually central to the scriptures. Adam and Eve had their nakedness covered over by the Lord after the fall. Blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement covered over the sins of Israel. And most supremely, of course, Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross covers over our sins. In fact, clothing covering over us now with the perfect righteousness that he has earned. And citing Proverbs 10, 12 here, Peter speaks of another covering over. Not the covering of skin or of sin, but of our love, which covers over a multitude of sins. Love, Peter explains, overlooks wrongs. It forgives and forgets. 
rather than causing a dispute. Love doesn't pick away at petty things. Peter makes an important point here, one that we all need to hear because, frankly, this doesn't come naturally to any of us, does it? Love overlooks and forgives the faults of others in a church community. Love overlooks and forgives the faults of others in a church community. Now, that's a valuable virtue in any church, of course, but it's particularly important when a church is beginning to suffer, when hard times are coming, because we need to maintain solidarity in the midst of persecution. Now, friends, perhaps you're thinking this now. The scriptures equally say, and it's really important that we remember this, that sometimes sin does need to be brought out into the open, to be brought out before the church, having first been addressed individually and then with others, of course, as our Lord commands in Matthew 18. Sometimes Christian love does call us to confront and to challenge and to speak the truth in love. It's, it's not unrepentant, gross, scandalous sins that Peter has in view here. They must be disciplined for the good and the health of a church. It's not those kind of sins he's thinking about. It's pettiness and nitpicking that he has in view. It's that habit that that fellow member of church has that just drives you absolutely mad. It's being criticised by someone else over just the smallest thing, and it just doesn't get you. It's someone very helpfully pointing out all of your failures to you. And Peter says here, if, if something's a small matter, it's to be covered. It's love that covers over, that forgives and forgets these things. When you think about it, it's this covering love that enables a family to flourish, isn't it? We all know the foibles and the weaknesses and the failures of our family members, but we overlook them in love. And it's to be the same for us in our church family. Brothers and sisters, we need to be alert to the devil's schemes, particularly as opposition to the gospel arises. Satan will seek to divide and so seek to conquer God's people. Satan tempts us to hold grudges against other members of our church family, to constantly bring up past hurts and to allow them to fester away. But as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, True love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. We need to actively fight against these community-destroying sins, my brothers and sisters. As Peter continues here, though, he shows us that our love isn't just to be for our local church family, but also spread more broadly to the broad body of Christ. You see, in the first century when Peter wrote, it wasn't uncommon for travelling Christians to just turn up in a local town. And one of the greatest acts of love you could show these travellers was to show them hospitality and 
In fact, it's the same in much of the Near East today. Hospitality meant offering free meals and accommodation to anyone who would pass by. Now, this was a valuable, but also a very, very costly act of love. Because most of these early Christians just lived hand to mouth. But it's because of that cost, because it was hard that Peter calls them here to, to do that without grumbling, without resentment. Sometimes visitors in your home can be a bit like fish, can't they? After a few days, they start to smell. But Peter calls us here to offer hospitality without grumbling, to to set aside our own interests, to sacrifice with a willing and cheerful heart. And now look, there's no doubt at all that loving like that at a time like this is really hard and it requires creativity. It might mean contactless delivery of meals, maybe dropping supper, as I know some are doing, on the doorstep of all of the members of your house church group. It might mean as others are doing, I know, doing your daily exercise with another member of the church family so you can share and pray as you go. We shouldn't let these circumstances limit our love. And Peter moves on now to a third thing in verses 10 and 11. John read those verses for us quite a while ago now, so I want to read them again. Verses 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Notice Peter doesn't say, if one has received a gift, but that whatever gift you have received, you should use for God. The Apostle Paul taught the Corinthians the same thing. Every Christian, every Christian has been blessed with gifts from God. Every believer has been endowed with gifts to be used for the edification of the church. Some have the gift of preaching. Others, evangelism. Others, administration. Others, giving. And here he reminds us that these gifts aren't given for our own glory, that people might say, oh, gee, gee, you're really good at that. No, it's to build up the body of Christ. The implication of this, my friends, is clear, isn't it? If all of us have received gifts, that means all of us should be actively engaged in the ministry of the church because each of us have been endowed with the Holy Spirit, his power and his gifts. In verse 10, Peter picks up a theme he, he spoke about earlier on in chapter 2, the stewardship of our gifts. Now, please see, none of us control the gifts that we're given. None of us decide what gifts we get but we are responsible for using them. With the gift comes responsibility. And so maybe it is that you're not wired to just go up to people on Kinghorn Street and share the gospel with them. That's okay. Maybe instead you're, you're really good at 
IT and systems and strategic thinking. That's okay. If that's the case, use that gift. I know I've said this to you personally, some, some of you personally before, but often, you know, the area that we're most dissatisfied with, the area where we're most tempted to complain to others about, that's actually our area of giftedness. And God is using that discontent to give us a nudge to actually step out and use it. And so let me say to you this morning or this evening, if, if your heart yearns for more care in our church family, well, that's probably a gift for you. So use it. Step out and care others. Our, our tech team this morning, Nathan and Greg, are doing a great job. But, but if you sit at home and you bemoan our lack of IT competence and you struggle with that, well, that might be an area of giftedness for you. We'd love to have you help and serve. The purpose of our gifts, the gifts that you have been given, that I have been given, is to serve the body. Now, as we wrap up, I just want to name something for us, friends. Because the reality is, is for those of us who are introverts, for those of us who, who love watching church services online in our Ugg boots on Sunday morning, it's actually been a pretty good last 18 months, hasn't it? We haven't had to leave the house. We haven't had to make that, that fearful, anxiety-inducing small talk. We haven't had to connect with others, to invest in them. We haven't had to serve. You might even be sitting there this morning hoping that we do these online services until Jesus comes. It's tempting, isn't it? But Peter here says, no. Look to others. Don't just consume, but love. Use your gifts. Use your gifts for others. Because the strength that God provides, he provides for you to serve. Friends, as we regather in the coming months and years, there's going to be lots of opportunities for us to use that strength. God's got them ready for us, I know. And it's my prayer that he might be glorified as we do so. Because whenever we step out in faith and use these God-given gifts that way, it's God's power rather than our human ability that's seen. God's glory and reputation is enhanced as his people serve with the gifts he has given. Ultimately, my friends, that's why God allows suffering. That our lives might be orientated in the right direction to Christ. That the power of sin might be broken in our lives and that we might be conformed more and more into his likeness. That we might equally be orientated to the future that we might hold the scorn and judgment of others lightly, instead entrusting ourselves to the God who judges justly. And that we might be orientated to each other as the recipients of such great love and grace, loving and serving others in the body, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for these words of great comfort and hope in your word. We thank you that just as Christ promised there before ascending into heaven in the Great Commission, 
that you are with us always, empowering and enlivening us until the end of the age. And Lord, suffering reminds us that that end is coming soon. For suffering helps us to see our finitude and our fragility that we might reach out to you for the hope of salvation in Christ. Lord, if there is any who are watching or listening today who do not yet know that hope, I pray that they might reach out and claim the hope of the gospel once and for all today. And Lord, for those who do know Christ, Lord, I pray that you might help us to to, to know and to see that suffering is a reality this side of glory. But that, Lord, you have ordained that for our good and for your purposes. And so, Lord, we pray that you might use your word and your indwelling spirit when times are tough and when suffering comes to orientate us to Christ, to orientate us to the future, and to orientate us to each other, to the body of Christ. We pray this, Lord, that you might be glorified forever and ever. Amen.